LSA and Sport Pilot. Is this what the FAA had in mind? I'm Paul Plack, and this is Aero News. Welcome into the special feature. Thanks for downloading us today. In yesterday's special feature, I started a conversation with David Ord, government and advocacy specialist with the Experimental Aircraft Association, about new guidance issued by the FAA May 24th to its field offices for the issuance of LOTAs, Letters of Deviation Authority, to allow training in experimental aircraft. We'll finish that conversation today. Some of this whole topic comes down to how the LSA and sport pilot movement has turned out versus how it was envisioned. I may put you in some sensitive areas regarding EAA's position on this at some point, and and feel free to let me know. But when sport pilot and LSA came to be, part of the pitch was that it would be a new entry level for uh, for for pilots, you know, with perhaps less means available than uh, had been buying Part 23 and Part 27 certificated aircraft. Uh, but also, there was language in that, if I recall, that specifically talked about um, sparking new markets for aircraft. And I can only attribute that premise to the fact that a lot of what would have been considered light sport aircraft in a generic sense before LSA came to be in 2005, things like the the uh, oh the Cessna 140, um, the Aircoupe D model, um, you know the Aronka Champ that had an electric starter on it. A lot of these these aircraft that were just over the line weight wise mm-hmm. uh, were were locked out when there could have been an instantly available, very inexpensive fleet of aircraft for people who wanted to go this route. Um, did the FAA maybe jump the gun on this? Were they trying to push this too fast and? force us all to buy new LSAs? Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, luckily, I wasn't here <laughs> when, when the whole light sport, sport pilot uh, rule was kind of envisioned. Um, I, I, I definitely think we're going through, through some growing pains uh, with it, though. Um, you know, I, I don't know if, if – I, I don't think that they necessarily need, wanted you to buy – I don't think it was envisioned how expensive the, the, the aircraft would get. Um, but I also don't, I don't know if the, we'll call them the framers of the, the, the rule envision that the segment of the market would really just kind of push everything towards the high end. I mean, they're really, as far as pushing the boundaries of, of the definition of a light sport aircraft, I mean, you're seeing aircraft that are, that are getting just as close to the 120 knot, um, you know, maximum speed as possible. They have, I mean, they're essentially cross country machines. I mean, they have glass panels. They they're very sophisticated aircraft, and I think you know you got to remember light sport is kind of a spectrum, and and it, this low end, less than VH, uh, less than eighty seven knots VH section kind of got forgot about really. I mean, because everything kind of migrated to the guys that <clears throat> maybe they're transitioning down to sport pilot uh, because of medical reasons. I don't know, um, but now. You brought up the whole issue of, you know, like a Cessna 140 and the aircraft that are close to the definition of light sport, so sport pilot eligible aircraft. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I get those calls a lot. You know, why can't you just raise the weight limit of light sport aircraft so, you know, my 152 meets the definition? And what it it boils down to, though, it's, it's pilots that have, let's say, a private certificate or higher. They don't want to fly as sport pilots. They just want to fly using a driver's license medical. So my argument... Is, is this really a medical issue or is it an aircraft certification issue? I would argue that it's a medical issue. So if you solve the medical issue problem, then you, then you, you, then 
there's no need to increase the weight limit of light sport. You see what I'm saying? I do, and I think where you're going is is doing away with the third class medical as a requirement for for small aircraft um, private pilots. I mean, if you you know, there are people who say the data does not justify re- uh, continuing the requirement for a third class medical to fly, um, you know, a Cessna 152. Why don't we yep. just go to, especially given the the very reasonable safety record that Sport Pilot has accumulated, why aren't we talking about doing away with the medical for private pilots? And uh, I hear some rumbling when that comes up that people think that that would be the death knell for the LSA manufacturers. That suddenly people people who could fly 172s would just go and do that because they're so much easier to find. You know, it, it, I, I don't necessarily think it'll be the death nail, but I mean, and, and I don't know if, if we should go all the way to private. I mean, there, there's a certificate out there that's very underutilized, and it, its operating uh, privileges are pretty much the same as sport pilot, and it's recreational pilot certificate. So if, if you expand the use of driver's license medical to that certificate, I mean, you can operate any aircraft that has 180 horsepower or less, fixed wing, uh, fixed gear, uh, you know, control fixed prop. I mean, uh, so I mean that that's a lot of good quality used aircraft out there um, that could be flown by people uh, using a driver's license medical, and and that way you keep it somewhat segment, segmented and uh, separated from light sport. I, I don't know if it would be the death nail of uh, the. I, I I truly think that that the stuff that. Uh, that the light sport manufacturers are putting out are pretty exciting aircraft. And I, I, I think that they're going to be doing just fine. I, I truly do. Um, but, you know, I, I don't have a crystal ball, unfortunately. All right. Well, in your view, what remains to be done? I mean, if, if EAA looks at this document that came out from the FAA, what are your points of disappointment and what needs to be pushed further? Well, I, I'm a little bit concerned about um, how long it's taken. And, and, and like you said, I mean, how many people have left the sport and how many people are even going to get the motivation to apply for this MOTA? Um, and this is something that we discussed at the FAA summit that we had here in Oshkosh with the top uh, FAA officials. How many guys are out there that, are, that still have their aircraft? And let's see how many people apply for the LOTAs. If, if there's only a handful, which means that this segment of aviation it, there's only you know 12 guys out there in, for the entire nation to get transition training or primary training in these ELSAs, or or at least the you know the the low and slow light sport. Well, maybe we need to expand it then. Maybe we need to allow the guys that you know had a training deviation and have you know high experience as flight instructing in these aircraft. Maybe we need to allow those guys to continue to instruct in maybe a different ELSA than they previously owned. I, I don't know. Um, the, the other thing as well is the whole ultralight uh, vehicle training. I, I'm very glad that all ELSAs that, that meet the definition of uh, having you know, five, less than 500 pounds empty weight can, can give primary training for ultralights. My concern is, though, that, that in order to give that training, you, should ha- you have to have a sport pilot instructor certificate. How many guys are, are willing to put the time and effort to get that? Because as you would know, there was a lot of instructors out there when, when you know, for the uh, quote-unquote fat ultralights that were giving good quality instruction, but they didn't necessarily have to have a uh, flight instructor certificate. So 
how many people are going to take care, take advantage of that? I mean, if, if we really want to move the needles on aviation safety, we have to be able to give transition training. And a lot of times, in order to give that transition training, we have to have, make it economically viable. And if we don't allow the people to make, you know, even just to cover their costs, because a lot of these guys are out there, they're barely covering their costs, and they're doing it just because they love the sport. We have to make it economically viable. Now, as I said, the FAA is not concerned about economics, but I am, and other associations need to be. And if, and if we don't foster and promote general aviation, who else would? And I think it's important that we, we encourage the FAA to, to issue these LOTAs. We encourage people to apply for these LOTAs. We, we, we make the process as easy as possible. Well, in some ways, it's back to the bad old days where if you have a, a, a FISDO that's sharp and on the ball and cares, you might get it done pretty quickly. And if you don't, it, it could take months or, or longer. Um, and that's where this, this document is key, because back in the good old days, if you had a very you know, proactive FISDO, he or she would call headquarters, get the verbal guidance, and then it could be a very quick and easy uh, transaction. Now it's all spelled out. This is exactly what a LOTA is for. This is how to do it. There's no calling. I mean, if you need assistance, you can call. But, but for the ASIs out there from in, in the field offices, they have the, the written document that tells them exactly how to do it. I think that's key. We'll be back for more with EAA's David Ord in a moment. I'm Paul Plack. You're listening to a special feature from Aero News. Diamond's DA42 Twin Star is General Aviation's ultimate flying machine. Fly fast with the confidence of a twin for the cost of a single. Go direct over water or rugged terrain and cover great distances in the first and only piston aircraft with an advanced airframe, avionics, and engines. The DA42 gives you options you've never had before, including the Garmin G1000 and known ice protection. Go where you want, when you want, fast and for less. Visit Diamond on the web at www.diamondair.com or call 888 359-3220. Welcome back to the Aero News Special Feature. I'm Paul Plack, talking with David Ord of EAA about the FAA's new guidance to FISDOs on the issuance of letters of deviation authority and whether it's really an improvement over what's gone before. I, I guess we probably won't have to wait too long to find out whether it's working better than the old system did. Let me talk about in closing here, something that we talked about before we started recording this interview, and that is you mentioned the change in the FAA's mission that was dictated by Congress following the value jet incident uh, a few years ago. Uh, and I want to go there for a couple of reasons, but but tell us how that the value jet crash impacted how this all works. Yeah, you know, I, I started working here about three years ago, and I started reading through some some of the uh, changes to 6191 and 141 as far as the uh, the final rules. And in one of those final rules, it had a very eloquent statement of how the FAA had a dual mandate. It was it was mandated by Congress to foster and promote general aviation while improving its safety record. Unfortunately, after the value jet accident in Florida, uh, that mandate got changed, and uh, the the foster and promote general aviation got taken out. So now the the agency essentially has has one one mandate, and that's to improve the safety of aviation. It's not a bad mandate, and and we fully support that. I mean, I serve on enough safety committees to <laughs> to, to shake a stick at, but mm-hmm. there has to be 
kind of a, a, an equal force there. I mean, just because the mandate got taken out of the agency's, uh, you know, uh, mission to foster and promote GA, we as, as associations, we as pilots have to continue it because if we don't, it, it, it's going to go away. And I think if you, we were talking about how if you read the policy guidance, you kind of, you, you, it's all about safety. And it, it makes it, it just adds a lot, a couple more hurdles. It makes it that much more difficult to, to obtain these things. And if you make it hard enough, eventually people are just going to go away and they're going to leave the sport because there's a lot of things and there's a lot of things competing for a lot of people's money, attention, time, everything. And so if you make it prohibitively hard in order to get into a sport like this, the demand is just going to go away. And so I think, you know, I'm, I'm glad they issued this. I, I'm, I'm very. We've been asking them for the last uh, three years to issue this because, especially for, like I said, the, the gyroplanes, the ultralights, and the uh, ELSA owners that were previously exempted. But I don't know where it's going to go from here. Uh, you know, if if we continue down this road of, of constantly regulating, regulating without promoting aviation, uh, I think aviation is just going to go away. And uh, I'll, I'll do my best to prevent that, but. It's it's going to get it's been a struggle. Well, and and I wouldn't even I wouldn't even ask the FAA to promote aviation. Just stop killing it. I mean, at some point, um, it, it's to that point. And I, I would make an alternate observation to yours about people just going away. The dream of flying dies hard. I mean, if somebody really wants to fly, uh, and there's a way to do it, uh, there's gonna there's gonna be an underground uh, sport like there has been at times in the past. Uh, you know, where you have guys with nod, nod, wink, wink, 300-pound ultralights, or you have people who made a good-faith effort to stay legal, and once they couldn't get a biennial flight review within a 1,000 miles of their home, they let it slip and stopped thinking about it. Maybe when that happened, they said, well, then I guess I don't need to bother with a medical either, and, well, annual inspection, you know, I'm already illegal, so what, you know? Um, I, I think that if that the FAA has to realize that at some point, uh, putting too tight a, a series of regulations in the interest of safety is counter-effective. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And but you know, I mean, at, at least this is out for now. I mean, at least it finally allows in writing for you know compensated trading in experimental uh, aircraft, and and that that's the key to moving the needle as far as amateur boat because you know. You know that we work a lot of amateur bill issues, and in order for uh, for in order for builders and pilots to get transition training, they have to find somebody with a loda. And you know, I I, I hope the agency is is uh, you know willingly gives these out because I mean, if somebody is interested in applying for a loda that is an experienced pilot in time make and model, I I think there would be no better person to give a transition training than that person. Well, I I hope it works out that way, and there are only a couple of organizations out there in the aviation world with enough membership and enough clout to be effective on this, and you guys are the one that is uh, that has stepped up in this area. Thanks for your time, and uh, we will stay in touch on this issue in the future. Thanks, Paul. David Ord is a government and advocacy specialist with the Experimental Aircraft Association. EAA's dedicated website for LSA and sport pilot content can be found at www.sportpilot.org. 
You've been listening to a special feature from Arrow News. Find us on the web at arrow-news.net. I'm Paul Plack. Thanks for listening. Have a clear and unlimited day. <laughs>